0: We're looking at the same text we looked at last week which is Luke 23 verse 38 and we're looking at this in the idea of, of heaven and what does it mean to be in heaven. Now last week we talked about how when we die as Christians we go immediately to be to the Lord in heaven and then eventually in Christ's timing that will give way to the resurrection So we talked about this time from the time of death as an intermediate time, a time when our souls are in heaven and our bodies remain in the grave until the resurrection of Christ. Now, at the time of the resurrection, well, then our body and soul is reunited, and then the bodily resurrection leads to an eternal state of glory in what we would call the new heaven and the new earth. Now in this text, Jesus is calling heaven paradise. Let's read it. Um, Verse 38, there was a written notice above Jesus which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So Jesus is calling this intermediate state that occurs at the time of a, a believer's death paradise. And he's calling it that, one reason he calls it that is because it's his father's home. And then Jesus calls it paradise because it's a place where we can enjoy fellowship with Jesus and Jesus enjoy fellowship with us his people. And then he calls it paradise because his people uh, in this heavenly state are fully active and fully conscious of all the bliss that is before them. Now, as a child, growing up in West Palm Beach, my dad, and my grandfather, uh, liked to go fishing in the ocean sometimes we would stop at one of the bridges and fish for uh, the small fish that hung around those bridges. And the favorite place was at the south end of Palm Beach. This this old wooden bridge at the time uh, that there were two of them that connected uh, West Palm Beach uh, with Palm Beach. Now it became a particular place of paradise for me because one evening, I pulled over there in a car with a pretty little red-headed girl, and I asked her if she would marry me, and she said yes. <laughs> so for that reason, that was kind of a place of paradise. But um, right on the ocean side of that bridge was an estate that was so large that during the Nixon term of office, when he was going back and forth to Miami, they would land at this state, a state because the family had offered it to the federal government. And the federal government turned it down as being too expensive to maintain. Donald Trump bought it, and it's owned by him today, and he's completely restored the place. But it, on the intercoastal side, it had a dock, but it wasn't for boats. It was for seaplanes. It had a small golf course. It had a huge mansion there that you could see with a a single round tower that went up, and I guess it was an observation thing that people could get into and look out over the ocean. The Beach Highway stood between this mansion and the ocean, but they had seen far enough ahead to actually put a tunnel under the road so that the people could just in privacy go back and forth. And as we'd fish there, I would think, I wonder what it would be like to live there. (laughs) Now, I would just say to you, that's what you should be thinking. As you read about heaven, you should be thinking, what will it be like to live there? And and so these passages, and there are many passages, there's just so many of them, that open up just various aspects of this idea of heaven. So Jesus is calling it paradise. If I could call that estate called mar a it had been built by the post family of the serial fortune, That's who had owned it initially. If I could think that that was paradise, I think that whatever heaven is going to be will eclipse that uh, tremendously. But we have our own ideas in these things to some degree help us as long as they don't limit us. Jesus uses the word paradise. Now, in the day and age that he uses this word, paradise was basically a term and a little bit of a technical term. And it meant something like a large estate that had walls around it and that had well-maintained gardens within those walls and that everything in there would be, as it were, perfect. And so this is the, the word that Jesus uses here. Now, in John chapter 14... Jesus uses the word, and he says, in my Father's house, and of course the Old King James Version and some of the later translations say, are many mansions. Some of the more recent translations have kind of put a limited kind of a word on there. It says many houses. I think if we think many mansions, it's a little more opening up to us, the idea It's got to be something grand. It's got to be something glorious. It's uh, spectacular. And so Jesus is explaining to his disciples his soon departure. He's going to suffer this crucifixion, and they are not going to see him anymore. He tells them this, I'm going away. You'll see me no more. And then Peter says, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And, of course, we get into the whole business of Jesus saying, I'd never deny you. And Jesus saying, well, you will deny me three times tonight. But into this bewilderment, into this confusion, and into this despair, it's at this time that Jesus gives this very clear word. Now, I think when we go through a time of loss, Margaret's going through a time of loss, And one of the first things that I said to her when I came into the home Monday afternoon was, your brother Thomas is at home. He has gone home. And that's the way we should look at it. In my father's house, Jesus said, are many mansions. It's a clear word. Now, to the disciples, and there's some, well, there's some bit of discussion Is this a promise that Jesus is giving to the 12, or the 11 in this case? In other words, should we anticipate mansions, or should only they anticipate mansions? Some, you know, not real sure, but most of us have come to the opinion that we use this almost every time we have a funeral we use these words that this is the idea. It's not merely for the Apostles, it's for us. Now Jesus' own words, paradise, heaven, he calls it my Father's house. In a parable he refers to it as Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. But it's properly, when we think of it in this way, God is going to be the focus of heaven, and that's why it's going to be paradise. Today, and well tonight for instance, I'll be teaching a, a group of parents about how they should consider raising their adult children, high schoolers and those in college and beyond college. And a lot of these young people are going through very confused times. When we lose people, we go through confused times. When we suffer, we go through confused times. And it's always helpful to have a clear, improper center. In heaven has God, in God's glory, as the clear, improper center of heaven. Um, Many of us are easily distracted When I was in school, uh, the teachers would always say, John has a difficult time staying on task. My mind was thinking about lots of things all the time. Heaven will not be like that. Our attention will be captivated. It won't be forced. God will own our attention. And when we see and begin to understand God's presence and God's glory and God's love, it's going to overwhelm us as nothing has ever overwhelmed us before. And that's an aspect of what Jesus is conveying here in these various words that he uses. Jesus will be there. Now, in the scriptures, he's saying repeatedly that he came from heaven, he came from God, and that that's where he's going to return. In these words to the thief, he's making it very clear that he is physically present in this place, and he also will be a center of our thoughts and our attention. So our lives will not be fragmented they won't be as complicated, so complex, so disoriented, they'll be focused and they'll be focused on that which is the highest and the best. Scriptures, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It's a place where angels are at and the angels are there in all manner and rank. You've got announcing angels, you've got archangels, You've got cherubim, you've got seraphim, you've got all kinds of angels that are there and present in this place. And they're there in this intermediate state in the sense of protection, in the sense of, sense of serving God and serving the saints that are there. Then again, it's a paradise because there's nothing there that's going to offend um, You won't have to worry about your past. I'm not saying you won't know about your past. I think we'll be conscious of who we have been, but we will not be caught up with that. Um, Again, you get into certain stages in your life. I think of when Pat and I were married. There's all kinds of things going on. And then we come to a service, and if you're the groom, you're up front, and you're seeing these people come in, and that's all nice. You can kind of get your attention on the people that have come to be with you, but then all of a sudden the doors open and the bride is there, and your attention's fixed. And in this sense, uh, there's you're going to be captivated with God's glory. You're going to be captivated with everything that heaven is. And your mind is going to be forward focused, and you're not going to be labored over things that have been a part of your past. Will you remember them? I think certainly we will. But will they be a worry or an anxiety or a burden to us? I don't think that we're going to look back in that manner and see and reflect on things in that way. Again, our denomination inherited a catechism that goes back to the mid-1600s, questions ask, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? And that question is answered, the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in righteousness and go, go immediately to be with the Lord. And so the sense here is anything that would be in us that would offend, that's going to be gone. Anything that would have been in our relationships with one another that may have offended, all of that, all of that's going to be gone. There'll be nothing in heaven that offends. There'll be nothing to ruin a good day. There'll be no raining on any parade. It's going to be God's goodness being overwhelming in every dimension of our existence. In heaven are all that believe. Now if you go back into the beginning and you say, okay, you've got Adam and Eve, they have children, Cain and Abel. Abel offers a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. Cain's sacrifice isn't acceptable. Cain murders Abel. What happened to Abel? Well, he was the first human inhabitant that was in heaven, and he's been there. He's been there all this time, and from that time till now, people are being added that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the glories that we're going to see, for me it's going to be a glory, I mean, every tribe and every tongue and every nation Right now on Riverside Drive, as you're going down past the uh, Riverside Cemetery, and down on the left a little ways is a new Metropolis restaurant. Now, it's not for everybody. You may not want to try it. It's primarily Indian, from India, (laughs) and Greek, and a few other things like that. And it may not be your cup of tea, but I love it. When I was in South Florida, there were options all the time. There were Mideastern restaurants, there were Cuban restaurants, you name it. We had it, and I loved it. And one of the things that's going to be true is it says every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I don't think when we get there we're going to be different than we are. I don't think somehow we're all going to get like, you know, homogenize milk and be just all the same. I think all of this ethnicity and diversity is a part of what the heaven and the glory of heaven and the paradise of heaven is all about. Uh, you begin to look at the ability to describe things and we're told in the scripture that Paul went up into heaven and he saw things and he says it's not proper to try to give an explanation of them all. John in the book of Revelation is shown these things. Now, this is where someone like myself will get into a little theological trouble possibly with some of you. But if we think that heaven's gates are two physical pearls then I think we get in trouble if we think that way. If we think that the streets are, quote, paved with what? Gold. Gold. All right. The problem is we're trying to make something what it's not. If you were to think of something that was as luminous and as glorious and somehow shimmering and shining in this ancient world, and you saw the gates, the way that the only way and words that John felt that he could use to convey what he saw was they looked like pearls. When he saw the glories of the streets, they looked like gold. Uh, when he saw the city, it was, I mean, it was so huge and it was a cube. It was length and its width and its height was equal. It's not trying to tell us that heaven is this like this giant high rise. It's trying to tell us something about its perfections. And so words can't convey what heaven is like adequately and so John goes to using these word pictures again you have something in your mind that conveys this and you should let your mind run with this and let it be expansive what is the glory of this paradise going to be now this is the intention I gave uh, Joe back there some of my favorite fishing books written by a guy named Zane Gray. Now most of you only seen Zane Gray, uh, all the Western books, if you've ever been to a yard sale around here, you're almost bound in to, to find somebody's got two to a whole set of Zane Gray Westerns. So people remember him for that. People don't remember that he had a whole movie studio out there in Los Angeles. And when I was a child, in the afternoon, you would see Zane Grey Theater on every uh, afternoon with some Western that he had written. Now, all that he did was, all that this production that he did was for one reason. He was an outdoorsman. That was the whole deal. And he labored writing Western books, producing movies, so he could go fishing literally. He went roping lions in the Grand Canyon. He went on long walks in deserts. But if you have ever read any of his stories about his actual experiences, one of these books is called New Zealand, The Angler's El Dorado. Now just in the term that he uses for the title, He's trying to tell you that this is a fisherman's paradise. And you read his stories, and he not only takes you there, but he brings that paradise to you at the same time. And it's as if you're there doing all of these things. That's exactly what the scriptures want to do for us. They want us to read these things with the level of anticipation that even here, even now, we live by faith and not by sight. We live with the things that are unseen because the unseen things are eternal and the things that we see are only temporal. But it's hard for us to make this transition But as we look and see that that's the intention of the scripture to lead us in that way, we should begin to see it as a paradise to which we're going. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's talking to people that are in a much more difficult situation than we find ourselves. And he says, I consider, this is Romans eight eighteen. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And then he goes on to say, Not only this, but we have the first fruits of the Spirit in ourselves, and we groan within ourselves, waiting equal, eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he is already seeing? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In Corinthians he brings out the same idea and he says this momentary light affliction will give way to an eternal weight of glory. And we're caught up in stuff here. We're caught up in the everyday pressures and the workaday world. The failures that are in our lives, the failures that are in the lives of other peoples, the brokenness that we experience in this world, and yet all through this the scripture is saying what's ahead, and it's certain, and so we need to look in that manner at at the whole idea of heaven. Now in paradise, Jesus is enjoying fellowship with his people. In John 13, he tells his disciples, where I am going, you can't go in the sense you can't go now. He says, but you will follow later. They've had fellowship with him. They will have fellowship with him again. The fellowship that they have had should serve us as an understanding of what that fellowship will become. It's not going to be totally different, but rather it's going to be almost identically and similar to what they've experienced. But the promise is to us as well. It's not merely to those disciples. We will have fellowship with Christ. Uh, I mean, we all like the idea that we could have been there for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we'll be there for some sermon, and I'm not sure that it'll be on a mount or on a boat, but it's going to be something like that fellowship. Jesus promises, I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus is promising intimate contact with himself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, in the book of Romans, in chapter 8, verse 35, the whole idea is that we will be with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul's saying that for me to die is gain. When we normally think of somebody dying, we think that we've experienced a loss. For them, it's Paul is saying we should look at it as a gain, and so we see that To die is gain, for me to live is Christ. All of these things are telling us about what this is going to be when we pass from this world in transition into that world where Christ is. Those who are fallen asleep, Jesus will bring them with him at the end. So from heaven... We also see, as Jesus goes there, that Jesus speaks to people here on earth. And so we come and we look in in Peter's situation, and Peter is given a vision from heaven. That vision is directly from the Lord. And it's showing him what the next step in the advance of the church should be. And and we see that this is Peter's understanding that he did not receive this vision or create this vision in some sense of sanctified imagination, but the Lord communicated that to him. We see Saul of Tarsus, and we see a person converted. Now the interesting thing about Saul's conversion, uh, in one time I was speaking with a, a person um, who believes that they decide to become a Christian. And I kept saying, well, you decide to become a Christian because Christ comes to you and makes himself real to you. And then you decide to become a Christian. No, she says, I decide to become a Christian. So I took her to Paul's story of Paul's conversion as he relates it in First Timothy. And he says that the way I was converted is to serve as an example to all those who believe. How did you come to faith in Christ? It was because Jesus Christ here on earth established from his side a relationship with you, and that relationship with you will last for all eternity. You have grown to be the friends of Jesus. Jesus has grown to be your friend. Uh, A few weeks back, I asked the question, I says, you know, who is my best friend in life, You know, the people that know my family says Pat is. I said, no, Jesus is. (laughs) Jesus is my best friend in life. If Jesus, what is Jesus going to do with his friends when this life ends? He's going to take his friends to be with him where he is. This is the promise that we see. We see that not only did Paul, Saul get converted this way, God spoke, Christ spoke directly to this man, Ananias, and sent that man, Ananias, to Saul. Later on, Saul is repeatedly being spoken to and directed by the Lord. You come to the whole book of Revelation, and it's a direct revelation of Jesus Christ through John to the church. It's Jesus from heaven relating to us. And that should help us to understand something of the way Jesus is going to relate to us as we are in heaven. Now, the last thing I want to just cover is that in paradise, we are conscious and we are active. In the life of Christ on earth, he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. Who shows up? Moses and Elijah. Are there. Now that's very fascinating. Where did they come from? <laughs> well, we'd have to say they came from this place that we call heaven. And here they are. And in some manner or form, they're in some bodily form, not their final resurrected bodies, but in some kind of a physical condition that they can be recognized and they're encouraging Jesus. Prior to his passion. They're conscious, they're active. Uh, we see in the parable of the rich man in Lazarus, we see Lazarus active. He is in the presence of Abraham and he is being comforted and in every way and form he is a beneficiary of all the benefits of what it means to be a believer. Unfortunately, we have the opposite picture of this rich man, and he is suffering, and he's suffering in a place that is called hell and torment. But the, the sense here for the believer is that they're conscious and they're active. In the book of Revelation, the saints serve the purpose of Jesus in heaven, In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, we have what's called the fifth seal, and it's the seal that is broken that shows the martyrs. Now one of the writers, Randy Alcorn, in his book on Heaven, he lists 22 different aspects from this one verse that he can speak of about the activity and the consciousness of the people now in heaven now he says yes it is spoken of of the martyrs but because this is true of the martyrs we should understand that these same things apply to our conscious and active state in heaven it wouldn't be just limited to them they call out for their vindication um doctor D.L. Moody the evangelist uh from the 1800s in Chicago, he talked to his friends. He says, sh- he was dying. He says, Shortly you'll read of my death. He says, Don't believe it. I'll be more alive than ever before. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just days before Hitler uh, committed suicide, called for the execution of the Lutheran pastor. And so they came and they called his name. He was in a room sort of like this with a bunch of other people that were there for capital offenses. And as he stood up, he said to those who were present, he says, this is the end. He knew what that summons meant. And then he looked at them and he says, but for me, it is just the beginning. Uh, A medical doctor turned pastor was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was dying of a slow cancer. And this man had been a medical doctor prior to being a minister. He knew what could be done, and he told them that he did not want any extraordinary measures taken. He says, do not keep me back from the glory. That was the way he expressed himself. And so over and over again, what we're seeing here in the scripture are things that we should dwell on. Paul says in Corinthians uh, or Colossians chapter 3, "If we become Christians, we need to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. We need to set our mind on the things above and not the things that are on earth." Now, if you're like me, and I think most of you are. You're busy. If you're like me, you've probably got some chaos and confusion running through your life. You've probably got a lot of hurts, you've probably got a lot of disappointments, and you've probably got enough to do today to last for two or three days. Right? You'll get all kinds of therapy on how to keep going. It won't be worth two cents. How do we keep going? We know who we are, and we know where we're going. And in the midst of these chaoses, we come back and we fix our attention on that. We belong to Christ. We're going to be with Christ. Let's pray. Father, bless us. We go through busy days. We go through turbulent days. And we go through them not only for ourselves, but for people we love. Help us to be people that can point them to heaven, all of its glories, and to be satisfied with them here, knowing that they are going to satisfy us beyond our wildest expectations as we move from this life to the life which is uniquely yours in heaven. We pray for this with thanksgiving. Amen.